0: So, we have been in a series of messages of, oh, children's chat. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I joined two of our children today. I'm done, right? Good morning. (laughs) Caden and Mila, how are you all today? You have a shiny nose. You went to the circus? Well, that's fun. What kind of animals did you see at the circus? We, we saw the only the Just the people? Horses? That's fun. A bouncy house? That's a lot of fun. Okay, okay, I have a question for you. Have you ever been scared? <laughs> never, <laughs> never been scared, never huh, okay, yeah, I've been scared. Um, have you ever been sad? never, never been sad never. um Let's see, have you ever been uh, confuzzled? Yes, Yes, you have been confuzzled? Okay, we got one. We landed one. We've been confuzzled. Okay. So, Caden, when you're confuzzled, what do you do? You don't know? Okay, I got an idea. I got an idea. It's from, it's from Psalm 57, and a, a guy named King David wrote this, and it says, I cry out to God most high. So what does it mean to cry out? I don't know. It, means, it means to call for someone, right, to call for them. So if you were at the circus and you looked up and you couldn't see your sister, You might call out for her. You might say, Mila, where are you? Right? Or you might take off running the other way. I don't know. Yeah. So God, God wants us when we are confuzzled or scared or lonely or whatever, he wants us to cry out to him. And all we have to do is say, God, dear God, please help. Right? He's there all the time. He's there everywhere. There's nowhere that God isn't. Did you know that? He's everywhere. And he's everywhere all the time. So if you ever need him, all you have to do is say, what do you say? Where are you? you?" (laughs) Or you could just start with dear God. Can I say a prayer for you guys? All right. Dear God, thank you for your love. Thank you for making us part of your family. Thank you for being there when we're scared or confuzzled or anything else. You're always there, and we can always call out to you because you love us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That wasn't difficult that was great. Y'all have a good time and hope for kids. You get to hang out with Mrs. Jen today. Mrs. Giggum, Jen Townsend. (coughs) Jimmy, when was the last time A&M beat Alabama? Wasn't Johnny Football the quarterback? 2012? 2012? So every nine years, you get to what? Oh yes, yes. We don't, we don't have an Aggie doing math in the back row, do we? <laughs> All right. Well, we're already prayed up because you know I'm efficient. I I work ahead. I'm a doer. I'm a planner kidding. Um, <laughs> that, hey, keep it, keep it down back there. <laughs> um, so we're in the midst of a sermon series called Ditched, and we're exploring that place where we often find ourselves in life, where we feel isolated or scared or lonely or otherwise, uh, well, confuzzled right? And we are looking at different episodes in the history of God's people where his children in the Bible have been, have felt or experienced this state of feeling ditched. We looked at Adam and Eve initially, and then we looked at Moses, and today we're going to take a look at David. And we're going to take a look at a part of David's life that is probably not the most discussed period of his life. We're going to look at a time in his life where he had to flee his home and his country for his own safety. And he had to do this twice, actually, in his lifetime, over two fairly extensive periods of time. But we're going to look at this first instance. And let me just set some background for you so david when he was a a young teenager uh, was tending sheep on his father's land and this he the reason he was doing this was because he was the youngest in his family and it's the worst job in antiquity uh, sitting out in the elements with a bunch of stinky sheep trying to make sure that nothing takes one and so David is given this lowest man on the totem pole job. He's out there, and the prophet Samuel comes, God tells Samuel to come to David's house to anoint the next king. The problem is, there's already a king in Israel. His name is Saul. He was the first king of Israel. And so, well, let's just take you through, We're, we, we've got the first 15 chapters of the book of First Samuel is really the life of Samuel and the reign of King Saul, or the, b- the first portion of the reign of King Saul. Then in chapter 16, verse 3, the prophet Samuel anoints David, this, this boy, this teenager, as king. And it's unclear whether David understood what was happening or anyone else understood what was happening. Samuel kind of comes into David's family and surveys all the young men there. And eventually I- they call in David and Samuel, God tells Samuel this is the one. He anoints him. We don't really know whether the people participating in that moment understood the importance of it. Um, nonetheless the Bible says that the Spirit rushes upon David at this moment that he's anointed, and in the very next verse, it tells us that the Spirit of God departed from King Saul. So, if you look at this from Saul's perspective, this king has been anointed, he's been serving as king, and he's had the Spirit of God with him in that service, that office of service, up until the point that it's not with him anymore. And Saul begins to go crazy. He begins to lose his mind, his sanity. And then shortly after David is anointed, he kills Goliath. You probably know that story of David and Goliath, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna linger there. But I want to take you to a passage in 1 in Samuel chapter 18, and you'll see the the setting of what is about to transpire. So I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 6 through verse 11. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So, you can see the tension. The current king sees the rising popularity of his successor, and what does Saul, who does Saul want to become the next king? His son, whose name was Jonathan, who happened to be David's best friend. The story gets weird. It's okay. Um, but Saul is thinking, I'll pass the throne on to my son, and God has already anointed David as the next king. And again, we're unclear as to how aware Saul was of the actual anointing, but it's very clear that he's aware of the threat or what he considers to be the threat of David's rise to his own reign as king. And so, shortly thereafter, the next few chapters, there's an attempt by Saul to assassinate David in his home, but David's wife warns him of the uh, coming assassins, and he escapes in in the night and flees into the wilderness and those last 8 or 9 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel David is literally hiding for his life he's a hunted man so that's sort of the end of the background is is we had Samuel anointing David the spirit rushes upon him the spirit leaves Saul David kills Goliath, his popularity is swelling, Saul feels threatened, and Saul begins this period of time where he's trying to kill David. David is literally a hunted man. So, of all the ways that a person can feel ditched in life, I don't know if you've ever felt this one, right? There's... It's the feeling that your life is being threatened. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is probably in a, in a domestic relationship that becomes abusive, and you're in this, this cycle of abuse with someone, and their power over you makes you feel like you are being hunted, or tormented, or persecuted beyond what is reasonable, and you begin to fear for your safety. But there are plenty of other places in life where we feel threatened, maybe in the way that Saul felt threatened, threatened by the, the rise of another, or the presence of another, or threatened by someone feeling threatened by you. And so there's a variety of ways in which feeling threatened is common to us all. And I suppose that the question becomes, what does God say to us in the midst of feeling threatened? When we feel ditched in this way, How does God want us to respond? And I I would say, if, if you are in a domestic relationship that is not safe, get to some place that is safe. Get help. And that is a separate question from what God wants us to do. So let me start here. You know, in the Psalms, many of which are written by David himself, uh, there are multiple Psalms written by David where he expresses the anguish of a human heart that has felt ditched. And there are actually a few Psalms that are, that are more emotive than the one we're going to read today. But this particular Psalm is attributed to David while he was hiding from Saul. This is where David was spiritually, emotionally, and physically in hiding, fleeing for his life as he felt threatened on an on a ongoing basis. And I hope that we can glean something from this, like the, the something of what are we supposed to do when we feel ditched? Whether we feel threatened or some other type of uh, abandonment or discouragement, what can we do? And so I'm going to read Psalm 57, and before I do that, I'm going to just explain, in, in the Psalms, uh, right before many of the Psalms, there's a little introductory line, and part of that line is just musical annotation. For example, before Psalm 57, it says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy. Well, we don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's like a tune maybe that is a common tune that's used by the people of Israel and they sing different sets of lyrics to the same tune. And so that's the musical annotation that, Precedes the psalm, a miktam of David, that's the type of meter, I think, I'm not exactly sure, when he fled from Saul in the cave. So there's a great story embedded in 1 Samuel where David is literally hiding from Saul, and Saul's troops are on one side of a mountain, David and his few men are on the other side of a mountain. And they're literally like moving around. David finds a cave and ducks into the cave with his men. And they're in the very inner reaches of this cave. Who walks into the cave except Saul? And Saul is there to do some very human business. uh, And while Saul is evacuating a part of his human body uh, David sneaks up cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and then waits for Saul to leave the cave and then David comes out and s- he's like hey look I'm not trying to kill you okay I, I cut this off of your robe while you were in there doing your business if I wanted to kill you I wouldn't have done this I, I and mean then this is my demonstration and then Saul sort of feels bad and then starts hunting David again shortly thereafter. And so this is just an ongoing, um, but this is, this psalm is going to tell us kind of where David was and what he did in that moment, in that period of his life where he felt ditched and threatened. So Psalm 57, beginning in verse one, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul Is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps, my soul was bowed down, they dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake. O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So, I want to just take some cues from this psalm. And remembering where David is, emotionally, physically, spiritually, He's threatened. He's hiding. He's running for his life. He's being hunted by another person. And what we see him do first in this psalm is cry out to God. That we are to seek God's face in the midst of our fears. When we feel threatened, where is it we are to turn? to God, to turn toward him, to take refuge in his character. I, I love the way that David pursues this psalm. He starts with, be merciful to me. He's appealing to the, to the n- merciful nature of God. He says that he will take refuge and cry out, to God most high, to the God who fulfills his purpose for me. David claims God's mercy in the midst of the storm, and he trusts God's providence in the pain of his moment. So here's the simplicity of this. When life is painful, we can stop and say, God, God, I'm in pain. I need you. Help me. Fill me. Speak to me. We can trust that God has a plan. Even when it looks like from our current vantage point that all is lost. We can assume, we can trust, we can have faith that God is at work. That he's not finished with us. We can take refuge in his character, and we can find hope in his love. And I want to just show you in verses 3 and 4 what David's doing. He said, he, in the beginning of verse 3, he affirms that God will save him, that he will put to shame those who trample upon him, that he will send out his steadfast love, And his faithfulness. So, this idea that when we are in our darkest moments, God's love shines the brightest, that we can find hope in the fact that God loves us, that he is not done with us, we can be assured that he is faithful, and we can be real. With him, Verse 4 speaks some of the truest words ever penned. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Tell me you've never felt that, that someone else's tongue cut you. The wounds are deep and they can feel very fatal. I want to focus on one aspect of this, these two verses. That God will, He will send from, se- send from heaven and save me. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. That God will fulfill his promises to his people. And David talks here about salvation. And the irony should not be lost on us that everything that David is experiencing will be experienced again by one of his descendants who will be the Messiah the Savior of the world. That he will feel like he is surrounded by lions. That he is taunted by men. That he is pierced for our transgressions. And David articulates here this hope of a future salvation. But when his descendant Jesus Christ comes and feels these exact same emotions of being abandoned and hunted and threatened that Jesus actually fulfills these words on behalf of all of God's children by offering that life as a sacrifice for our forgiveness and so this is not just a poem It is simultaneously a prophecy, a hopeful prophecy, that God will someday provide the atonement for our sin, the antidote to that biting of the human tongue, the answer to our being hunted and threatened, the response to death, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so, this psalm becomes greater than its words in its fulfillment through Christ. That God brings all of this together into the person of His Son and works it out through these exact same emotions, feelings, and realities, but on the cross for our benefit, for our redemption. And so, We are reminded to seek God's face in the midst of our fears when we feel threatened. And we are called to move our focus away from our fears. This is easier said than done, right? Uh, Whatever the present reality is that is before us is the easiest thing to focus on. But God says, I want you to lift your head from this threat, and I want you to see something greater. I want you to see that you can take refuge in my character. And I want, I'm sorry, reading the wrong line. You can still do that. But I want you to return to what you know. I'm in verse 6 now. David says, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. And what he's doing here is is both being very honest with his situation, his circumstances, and simultaneously claiming what he knows, that God will work this out. That there will be a response from his God. We are to remember that God has a plan. And it is always amazing to me that in many of our worst circumstances, God does his best work, that he seems to be unafraid to allow bad things to befall us, because he knows that his light shines the brightest in our darkest moments. And so he wants us, when we are facing our fears or face-to-face with our fears, to return to what we know, to remember that he has a plan and to express the joy that transcends our circumstances. Look at David in verse 7. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. And he goes on in verse 8. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. So this is something we're going to talk about in the, for the rest of this passage. And it, it's, it goes like this, and, and faith sometimes is defiance. What I mean by that is that there are times when we have to express our faith in defiance of what is right in front of us. We have to claim that something other than what is threatening us is more true, has more strength, has more power than whatever we feel threatened by. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. First of all, this is one of the reasons that we have Funerals when we lose loved ones, we come together and we worship God in defiance of our loss. Our loss tells us that we are sad and grieving and that everything has changed and that someone is gone forever. Our faith points us to a deeper truth, something greater than the present loss, that there is hope that there is a reason for joy, that there is something that transcends the, the difficulty that we are in. And so by faith, we reach past our circumstances and grab a hold of that which is true. And there is a defiance in that. And interestingly, um, when I when I do funerals for the greatest generation or the generation right behind them, they often choose hymns like How Great Thou Art. And to sing How Great Thou Art in the face of the loss of your spouse, that's bold. That's defiant. That's your faith Reaching past your circumstances and claiming something that is greater and truer and stronger than your grief. That's exactly what David does here. He is literally being hunted. And he begins to write about joy. What? How is that possible? It's possible through the faith that God plants in our hearts that allows us to see past a circumstance to something greater. And so we are to return to what we know in the face of our fears, to get our focus off of our circumstances and to express a joy that transcends the present. We are to... Look up. Look to God. And I want to point out something David does here in verse 5 and verse 11. These are repetitions. And he takes his circumstances about which he has been abundantly real, like in verse 4, and again in verse 6, and he, he surrounds them with the glory of God. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He sandwiches his circumstances in between these two pieces of God's glory. We are to surround our problems with God's glory to put God ahead of our problems and behind our problems. That he is surrounding us in our circumstances. We are to give him thanks and praise. Again, verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. This is defiant faith expressed. Where is David when he writes this? He's in a cave. He's being hunted. He is a peace. He's an animal. He's fleeing for his life. He's threatened every day. He has to watch every step he takes. And yet he says, in total defiance to his circumstances, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. We are to give him thanks and praise, and we are to dwell on his love and his faithfulness. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And he has combined these words earlier in verse 3, saying God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And I want to just point out the difference, the shift that has taken place here. In verse 3, David is, is claiming by the character of God, by what he knows of his creator, that God is provident, that he will work out his will in this world. In verse 10, notice the shift. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens. He's in the present tense. He's not projecting into the future. He's pulling it down to the present in his reality. He is dwelling in and on God's love and faithfulness. We have a gift that allows us as God's children to look up to look beyond to see something that is greater than the present circumstances in front of us we have a God who is love and who is faithful who loves you and has promised to be faithful to you we are his children we are to claim that strength in defiance of our circumstances to know that God will prevail in this world, in our lives, in his church, in history. His will shall be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves, that you are a God who pursues the hearts of his people, that you give us the gift of faith to look past our circumstances, to see your hand at work in our world and in our lives. Father, give us strength from these truths. Help us to return to what we know to be true about you and because of you about ourselves. That we are yours, that your hand is upon us, that you are loving us and guiding us through this life and that you have something better for all of us. Lord, lift our heads to look up from our circumstances and see your glory to see your love, your faithfulness is present and real, and to have joy even in the midst of our feeling ditched, that we can know that you love us and you go with us in every step we take. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.